Well, good morning. A very warm welcome to you all. It's a great privilege to be back here with you in Dundee. Uh, I'd like to read to us the opening words of John's gospel. John chapter 1 from verse 1, page 1062, if you have one of the Red uh, Pew Bibles. And I chose this text because what we have here is John painting a very big portrait for us, showing to us Jesus, the subject of his gospel, but Jesus, the author of all things, the one at the beginning, middle, and end, and showing to us how we can connect with this Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man whose name, who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me. From the fullness of His grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Amen. Well, the figures are in for 2018, and 10.2 million people visited the Louvre Museum in Paris. Forgive me if I've mispronounced that word. There's at least one French speaker here. It's as good as an American can get to pronounce Louvre. Not only is that the most visited museum in the year 2018, it is is the most visited museum in any year at any time. And I would suggest that each of those 10.2 million people as they entered that huge museum with thousands of pieces of artwork on display, that each of those visitors would have made sure that they saw the masterpiece, the Mona Lisa. And I would also suggest that a good majority of the 10.2 million people would have had the same reaction that I had. It seems so small. So the Mona Lisa, the dimensions, I think, are 30 inches, 31 inches by 21 inches. It's quite a small piece of art. And when you have a small portrait, the temptation is, or that you feel like the need is, you need to step closer. You want to see the detail. With 10.2 million people trying to do the same thing, it's a bit crowded. But a small portrait makes you move closer. 
But let me give you a, a contrast. So 30 by 21 inches. In the year 2015, in the Royal Academy, after not being on show for 30 years or more, it was the 30th, the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo, and the Academy had what was described as the Waterloo cartoon. Now, it was a sketch, a large-scale sketch for uh, the victory of Waterloo, and it was the dimensions of this particular cartoon was 13 meters by 3 meters, so life-size filled the whole room. And with a big canvas like that, instead of stepping closer, you need to step back. Because you, need to, you want to get the whole breadth of what the artist is trying to do. And in this huge canvas, 13 meters across, 3 meters tall, you have right at the center, the victor, the Duke of Wellington. One character who's obviously notable for his absence is his opponent, Napoleon, nowhere to be found. What I'd like to suggest that we have here this morning, that the Apostle John is right, is giving to us a very big canvas. And he's asking us to step back and to see the subject of his portrait, who is right at the very center. All of our attention is focused on this Jesus, who he is, what he's come to do, what he's achieved, and how we as people can come to know him, can come to be part of his family, can come to relate to him. And he is the center. Now, I think it's always important as you read the Bible to ask yourself personal questions. What does this mean? What does this mean to me? Where can I find myself in the story? How can I understand what God is saying to me? And, and that's very important. But first and foremost, as we read the Bible, ask the question, where do I see Jesus? Where, where is Jesus in this passage? Where is Jesus in this story? Because we, we know that he's the center of the picture. He's the center of the story. I mentioned to the children that on the 13th of October is my birthday, almost 10 months from now. Now, on that day and on your particular birthdays, you can be forgiven for, some, for thinking that you're, you're the, you're the, you can be the center of the story on that day. It's, it's your day. It's your birthday. If there's a party, it's your party. But you see, we have a tendency to think that we're the center of the story each day on every occasion. I was reading uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, a very, very helpful book by Paul David Tripp. And he had an illustration in that book about a child's party, and one of the invited children was crying during the party. And the parents asked the child, what's wrong? Why are you so upset? And he said, I'm not getting any presents, and the people aren't singing to me. And they tried to explain to him, but it's not your party. It's, you're, a, you're a guest in somebody else's party. This world is not about us primarily. We're part of the story, but we're not the center of the story. The world in which we live and the Bible that we are now reading tells us that God's the center of the story. He's the beginning of the story. He's the middle of the story. He's the end of the story. We have a part to play and we have a role in the story, but we're not in the center of the picture. So with you this morning, I'd like to look at a few contrasts that... Uh, that, that capture our mind as we read this remarkable passage. Just as way of, as, as way of an aside, 
ask yourself, what kind of person, what kind of encounter prompts a first century fisherman to write this kind of story? What kind of encounter inspires this kind of biography? Because as we encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, we encounter one who is incomparable. We can't say he's like because he's unlike any other figure in human history. And I remember when I began to go to church many years ago when I first came to this country, I began to hear phrases that I just didn't understand that people would testify or speak about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, as a student of history, I found that quite unusual because I understood history and I understood figures in the past, but I've never heard anyone say that they had a personal relationship with Julius Caesar or Charlemagne or Napoleon or any of the great figures of literature or history or politics, whatever it might be. So Jesus is incomparable. He has, he has no basis for comparison. Yes, a human being, physical, and we'll see that in a moment, like, like one of us. But what we see here is that the author John is introducing us to Jesus Christ powerfully, personally. His life was transformed, and his intention was that those who would read these words, that they too would have a life-transforming encounter with this Jesus Christ. The first thing I'd like to notice is that Jesus had no beginning, and yet he became. John makes it quite clear that Jesus Christ is God, fully God. All that we know about God is true about Jesus. Now, as big of an idea as God is, we can somewhat grasp this concept, that there is a God who creates the world, there is a God who sustains the world, and then John goes on to tell us, almost in the same breath, or at least you know, 14 verses later, that this God became flesh. That Jesus Christ, who always is, who always was, who has no beginning, who has no end, that at some point in time, God became a human being. This is a profound mystery. We can't explain how, but we are simply presented with the what. And as we try to grasp this combination that we have in Jesus Christ, one who is God and one who is human, we realize with the ancient writers that this profound mystery needs some form of words, some explanation, because otherwise our, our human intellects will, will inevitably get it wrong. We will inevitably focus on one aspect of Jesus to the detriment of the other. We will inevitably focus on maybe his humanity, he's, he's like us and lose track of the fact that he's God, he's not like us, or vice versa. We focus on his deity, the fact that he's God, and we lose track of the fact that he can understand, he can sympathize, he's been here, he's done that. One of the ancient writers in the fourth century, a man called Hilary in France, in Poitiers, he's, again, sorry for the pronunciation, but if you're free, you'll know where I'm talking about. But he said this, he said, remaining what he was, Jesus, God, he became what he was not. Now, this is a mystery on a big scale. And John is not seeking to explain how this happened, but he's simply wanting to tell us that it happened. 
So in the beginning, verse 1 was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 14, the Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Creator, the Sustainer, the one who knows all, the one who sees all, the one who has all power, who has all authority, at a point in time, in place, in history, became a human being and came to enter into the story The one who created the story, the one who created the world, now becomes a player in human history. And John gives us this twofold testimony. Verse 14, which I just read, was that he beheld the glory of God in Jesus Christ. So as you see Jesus, you see the glory of God. You see the very presence of God, the power of God, the the magnificence of God. And as you come to know Jesus, you find that there's something fascinating about him, something that's engaging, something that just, you can't even put it into words. And I, and I remember, as I began to read the biographies of Jesus, when I wasn't a Christian, I wasn't a believer in Jesus, but I found this Jesus fascinating, the things that he did, the things that he said. The things that he said about us, the things that he said about himself, the way in which he explained what the meaning of life really was. Gave sight to the blind, the hearing, the deaf could hear, the lame could walk, the dead could rise. And I just found this man fascinating, just as a subject of, of literature, if nothing else. And I would encourage you, if, if you're not yet familiar with the story, pick up any one of the four, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, read the account and see for yourself if it, if it isn't there just something fascinating about Jesus, something compelling about Jesus, something attractive about Jesus. Something unprecedented about Jesus. Because when you encounter him, you encounter the very glory of God. The very presence of God. The very power of God. So John says, you see Jesus, you see the glory of God. Then he goes on in verse 18 and he says, when you see Jesus, you see God himself. No one has ever seen God, verse 18. But God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. God is invisible. God is spirit. You can't see him, touch him, feel him. He, you know, but when Jesus Christ became a human being, we could see Jesus. We could see God face to face. He's made God known to us. They had heard. They had read. They had been told. They had been expecting. But now he had arrived. So Jesus had no beginning. He has no starting point. He always is. He always was. He always will be. You see, we, we can't even, human language, the, the, the grammar of the English language can't, can't truly express this, this timelessness of Jesus. At any point in human history, he was there. He was always there. He was before. And at any point in human history, he will be there and beyond. So this twofold testimony, we've seen the glory of God and we've seen the invisible God now made visible. God now in human flesh. Is this your testimony? You've heard about, you've read about, you've heard others maybe testify concerning who this Jesus is, but can you share with John that this is a personal story for you, that you have seen, that you've come to understand, maybe from a very young age, maybe you've come at a much later time in life, the, the, the circumstances don't matter. 
Your individual time frame doesn't matter. But can you add your own word of, of personal testimony? We have seen. Uh, we, 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 we now know. We now understand. We had heard about, but now we have come to know and to understand. And we'll see in a moment exactly what this looks like in practice. So the one who has no beginning became. The second thing that I'd like to notice here is that Jesus needs nothing and no one, and yet he uses people to make himself known. This seems remarkable. And it seems remarkable here we have a gathering of people on a Sunday morning, and we're hearing about events that happened 2,000 years ago. But the message of the Bible says to you and me that you and I matter, As I was saying to the children, we matter to God. We have a value and intrinsic worth in God's sight. He looks upon us. He sees our need. He sees our our hopelessness and helplessness, and that moves him to action. But the remarkable truth of following Jesus is that he puts people like us into work. He uses us in his service. He doesn't need us, but he uses us. He doesn't need our voices, and yet we speak. He doesn't need our hands, and yet we act. He doesn't need anything about us, and yet he puts real people into work in his kingdom. And that's the remarkable truth, is that here we have a room of ordinary people, and yet we are worshiping an extraordinary God who uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary plan and purpose. So in that regard, none of us is is ordinary. Each one of us has the opportunity of serving the living and true God, of serving Jesus Christ, who always is, who always was, who always will be, who became a human being, and that we, like John the author, can add our personal testimony. And every Christian here today, young or old, you have a story to tell. But let me ask you this, when you tell that story, is Jesus at the center of that story? Over the years, I've heard many testimonies, and sadly, some testimonies, Jesus is a supporting character. The individual themselves is the main character of the story, and Jesus has a walk-on role. But actually, if we're honest, Jesus is not a supporting character in our story. He doesn't have a cameo appearance. If you have a testimony, he's at the center of the testimony, who he is, what he has done. But you're part of your own story, of course, because it's your story, how you came to know, how you came to hear, how you came to meet with this Jesus in youth, in old age, in times of joy or in times of sorrow, when things were going well or when things weren't going well. Because John makes it quite clear. You see, John's not a biased, an unbiased author. John has clear bias or clear prejudice. Because at the very end of his gospel account, he says this. In verse 20 of chapter 20, or verse 30 of chapter 20, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So not only is he going to say what he believes, he's not only going to tell us what he saw or what he heard or what he encountered, but he's doing so with a purpose that you too would hear, that you too would see, and that we too would come to know and to understand for ourselves. 
Now, Jesus does not need John, nor does he need you, nor me. And yet he uses this Galilean fisherman as the author of a biography. And through this biography, countless people have come to see for themselves and joined in their faith, trusting in this self-same Jesus. It's remarkable what God can do in and through the lives of ordinary people. A figure that I find myself fascinated with is a fellow American, um, generations ago now, but a man who came to know Jesus when he was 18 years old. He was a businessman. His desire was to sell the most shoes of any shoe salesman in the big city of Chicago. Well, he started out in Boston, later went to Chicago, and he was a natural salesman. He was a natural people person. But he had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ, and this man called D.L. Moody now had a new story to tell. He had a new message to give, no longer the world's greatest shoe salesman. But this man who had a very limited education, I'm probably speaking to many people here. Maybe you're in, in Dundee and you're here in school, high school. Maybe you're here in university or postgraduate work and you're well-educated. You've got good opportunities. You're learning about your chosen subject, your chosen field. Maybe you're an expert in that field. And that's great. And God uses the gifts of the intellect. But maybe there are people here that aren't that well-educated. School was not a joyful experience. It wasn't your thing. Let me just tell you a little bit about this man, D.L. Moody. He was educated to the fourth grade, which in the United States is about 10 years old. His grasp of the English language at times was tenuous. His pronunciation of the English language, even for an American, was unique. And yet he met Jesus powerfully and personally. And God used this man to personally proclaim the gospel to 100 million people. That's quite remarkable. And that's not telling us that D.L. Moody is remarkable, but it tells us that God is remarkable in what he can do in those who are willing to serve, those who are willing to speak, those who are willing to tell, to testify. And the great thing is, is that you don't need to tell anyone else's story. All you need to do is tell your story. You don't need to be the expert on all things. None of us are. But if you, like John, can tell a story where Jesus is at the center and where you have testified that you've seen him, you've come to know him, and you've come to follow him, there's no telling what God can do in your life and through your life. So he uses someone like John the author. He uses someone like John the Baptist. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. John had a simple testimony. He came to tell, this is the Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was simply a signpost. He simply pointed people to this Jesus. Surely we can be that signpost. We can tell people that while we don't know the answer, he does know the answer. We can tell people that we can't fix the problem, but he can fix the problem. We can tell people that while we don't understand how things fit together, we don't understand the politics or the culture, we don't understand the age in which we live, but he does. We don't understand how things are going to finish and how, how somehow God can bring good out of evil and, and somehow can fix all these things that seem so unfixable, but he does. Behold the Lamb of God, John the Baptist says, who takes away the sin of the world. He was a witness. That's a word that's used often in the Bible as a descriptor of a Christian. 
You're a witness. But the question is, are you a credible witness? Do the words that you say and the life that you live fit together? Jesus has changed my life. That's wonderful testimony to say, but has Jesus indeed changed your life? Has he transformed your heart? And is it obvious that you are walking with him in faith? So you have John, the author. You have John the Baptist. You also have Moses. We're told in verse uh, 17, for the law was given through Moses. God uses all different kinds of people in all different kinds of ages for particular reasons. Now, God gave us his law, Moses, the agent through which the law was given. Now, the law is good, but the law is not the gospel. You see, we can list the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament or the two commandments that Jesus restated in the New Testament. Remember the restatement where Jesus said, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the greatest commandments. There's no greater commandments than these. Now, the law cannot save. And this is why Christianity is so counterintuitive. It's unlike any other religion. It's unlike any other philosophy. It's unlike the thousands of self-help books that are on the market. Now, you might like watching Oprah. I don't know if Oprah's on television here, but Oprah's very popular. The books that she writes or the books that she endorses, her television shows, she's a very popular person. And I think she has a genuine desire to see people live happier lives and to see people live more fulfilled lives and to see people who have brokenness come to find a measure of healing. Now, all that's wonderful and important, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is not to say to you and me, how can we live that better life or that more fulfilled life? The gospel is not a message to make good people better or you know, sad people happier. But the message of Jesus Christ is a message of transformation that begins on the human heart that only God can do. So it's not what you can do, it's what God can do. Now the law that was given through Moses shows us the problem. It's like a mirror. You read the law of God, you put the mirror up and you see that's what I'm like. I'm told don't covet, I do covet. I'm told don't and I do, I'm told do and I don't. Romans chapter 7 those, that great conflict that we find, those good things that we want to do, we find that we don't. The bad things that we want to avoid, we find that we do. And the law constantly reminds us that we need help, that we need someone else who can fix that broken life, that broken heart that is ours. So he has no beginning, and yet he became. He needs nothing and no one, and yet he uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purpose And I'd like to notice this, that Jesus was rejected by the very people who had come to expect him or should have expected him, and yet he invites anyone and everyone to become a part of his family. He came to the world that he created. He came to his own people. They had heard, they had read, they had been prepared, but they simply did not realize. They simply did not recognize In 1955, Disneyland opened in Southern California. It was the dream of Walt Disney. He had the the dream, he had the plans, ultimately had this park built, and he owned the place. And thousands of people flocked to California. They wanted to be part of Disneyland. They wanted to see what this new place was like. 
and the rides were packed with people. The queues were long. And the story was told one day that this elderly man was walking around Disneyland with a group of people with him. And at every ride, at every queue, they went to the front of the line and got onto the ride. They didn't have to wait. You can imagine, maybe especially Americans who might be more likely to express their views rather than more reserved uh, British people. Somebody said, who do you think you are? Do you think you're Walt Disney? And the man said, well, actually, I am. So Disneyland was his. He owned the place. He built it. He owned it. So if he wanted to go to the front of the line, that was fine because it was his. Now, Jesus Christ built this world. He owns this world. Everything about it is his. So you would think that when he comes into the world that everybody would have recognized him. They didn't. The Jewish people, the people of the Old Testament, the people of the book that had been told about one who was to come, you would have thought if anyone was ready, they were ready. But he came to his own people. They they didn't know him. When I grew up in the United States, 21 Windwood Road was my home. That was my childhood home up until just a few years ago. I never had to ring the doorbell, and I never had to knock on the door. Either the door was unlocked or I had a key. It was my house. And each one of us, I'm sure we can think in our minds that there is a place that we would call home, either a place that we've set up as home now or where we grew up. But imagine I show up one day at 21 Windwood Road and I go to turn the, the handle and the, the door's locked. Okay, I take out my key, I try, I try to unlock the door, but it's obviously the locks have been changed. Well, then I start to knock or I ring the bell and, and then somebody from my family comes to the door to take one look at me and the door shuts again in my face and is locked. I can't imagine that. What's gone wrong here? This is my house. This is my family. They know who I am. I know who they are. Why are they shutting the door? Well, that's what, exactly what happened when Jesus came. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This is, this is the great, con- great juxtaposition, the, the great conflict of the gospel. We need him. We desperately need him. There's something profoundly broken, and he's come in to fix this profoundly broken world and profoundly broken people, and by and large, the people that he spoke to and the people that he engaged with, they said, thank you, but no thank you. What you say we don't want, what you're offering we don't need, and what you're providing for us is, thank you, we just do not want this, we do not need this. And yet... And this is a great verse in verse 12, yet to all who received him. And maybe this morning, you realize that this is not yet you. Maybe this is not yet who you are. Maybe this is not yet what you've experienced. You're hearing all the words. Maybe you're familiar with the story. But maybe this is not yet who you are in your own experience. Now, as an American, I've lived here in this country for 29 years. I now have two passports and maybe some of you have dual nationalities. You might have a British passport, an American passport, or any other you know, country passport. I want to tell you something, and maybe this might be true of somebody here. I have two birth certificates. I have a birth certificate that says my name is Robert John Aykroyd. I was born on the 13th of October, 1966. But I also recently re- received another birth certificate that says I was born on the 13th of October, 1966, but that my name is Thomas Gilroy. They might ask, well, how is that possible? Sure, I can understand two passports, but how can you have two birth certificates? And how can the two birth certificates have two different names? Same birth date, same person. Well, I was adopted in March of 1967. 
And I was adopted into a new family. Ruth and Denny Aykroyd adopted this son, and they called this son Robert, or Bob, Bobby, as they called me when I was younger. And I became part of a new family. I've got a new birth certificate. That second birth certificate I told you about is no longer legal. I can't use that as a legal form of identification. I couldn't apply for a passport in the name of Thomas Gilroy because I'm no longer Thomas Gilroy. I'm no longer part of that family. I'm part of a new family. And the end yet, in verse 12, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So when we think of Jesus, and when we think of trusting in Jesus, following Jesus, I want to ask you a question. Do you realize that when you come to know Jesus, you become not only a follower of Jesus, you become not only a Christian, but you become a member of Jesus' family? There's a profound transformation of your status in God's sight. That you become part of the family. And when you become part of a family, you can never not become part of the family. So for good or for ill, the Aykroyd family adopted me, and I'm part of that family now. My sister is my sister. My cousins are my cousins. That's who I am, and that's who they are. A change of status that someone brought me from one to another family. And that's exactly what happens when we do this, when we receive Jesus. Not when we receive knowledge or not when we agree with certain principles, but when we receive him. You see, he's the center of the story. He's the focus of our faith. He's the foundation of our lives. We need him. So this morning, do you know him? Not about him. You may have heard of him, but you know him personally. Have you received him? To those who believed in his name, when you believe in Jesus, you believe in everything about him, who he is, what he's come to do, and who he is. Do you receive him? Do you believe in his name? Because then we are told that we have become one of his children. A profound change of life, a profound change of status. He's the center of the Bible. But is he the center of your heart, the center of your life? And maybe I'm speaking to Christians here this morning, and maybe he's now off-center. Maybe he once was at the center. Maybe he was the focus. Maybe he was the foundation. And maybe, maybe you find that you're going through the motions now. You know the songs. You know the story. You know how it begins. You know how it ends. And you have that connection. But maybe he's not where he should be in the center of the picture. And that big portrait of where you're there, but he needs to be the center. You see, there's all the temptations of the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil wants Jesus out of the picture. Wants him to the edge of the picture. Wants to put us in the middle of the picture again and say, well, what about you? What are your needs? What are your desires? What are your goals? What are your dreams? What What makes you happy? Well, as a member of this family, I want to know what makes my father happy. I want to know what makes God happy. I want to know what what pleases my elder brother, Jesus. And I want to express in some small way a profound thanks for what God has done in Jesus Christ for me. Is that your story? My story is unique. So is yours. But all Christians will have shared experience. We've come to receive him. We've come to believe in him. We've now become one of his family. This change can never be reversed. So today, if you feel that your grasp of the Christian faith is weak, if you feel that your own faith is tenuous, let me just remind you of this. 
It's far better to have a weak faith in a strong Savior than to have a strong faith in a weak Savior. God is able to do above and beyond what we ask or imagine. Our connection with him might seem to be just like a thread. But let me tell you this. The profound truth that we find in the Bible, it's not the strength of our commitment to him that matters, but profound the strength of his commitment to us. That he will not lose. He will not let us go. He will not let us down. That he can hold us and keep us and protect us and preserve us. Why? Because we're part of his family. He doesn't lose his family members. He doesn't let us go. So this morning we've seen that Jesus is at the center of this big picture. Take this step back and see the picture. See Jesus. Find your place within that large portrait. But always remember that he's at the center. He's the beginning. He's the middle. He's the end. And we now are part of his family. So may God bless his word to us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for each one of us gathered here, young and old alike. You know each one of us. You know where we come from. You know what our circumstances are. Each person in this place is so valuable to you, so valuable that you've sent your son into this world. And I pray that each one of us would have that personal experience of receiving and believing and therefore becoming a child of God through faith in your son, Jesus. These are things that we cannot do for ourselves. Only you can do it. So we commit these things to you now in that precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.